0: Hello everybody, this is uh, Andrew Young and uh, recording our latest edition of the Econ Weekly podcast. We're recording today on uh, April the 9th, 2022, and I'm joined as always by the publisher of Econ Weekly, uh, Jay Shabit. So Jay, good, uh, good day to you. Good day, Andrew. How are things out in Texas? I, well, Texas is uh, doing well, thank you. We're having that typical April weather of uh, nice hot days in the 70s and 80s Fahrenheit, and down to uh, down to about the, the the low teens. In fact, down to kind of about uh, sorry, that's Celsius. I'm getting my, uh, my my temperatures mixed up, but it goes down to about 40 degrees Fahrenheit overnight. So lovely long stretch and. Uh, um, interesting for, uh, for for what whether you uh, have air conditioning or heating on uh, in the house. Um, but uh, by the way, I- I've been getting a lot of comments
1: that uh, listeners love your Texan accent. <laughs>
0: Well, yes, yeah, so I, uh, I, I'm a slightly more east than Texas in terms of where my accent originates from. If, if anybody's interested, it's from the Midlands of the United Kingdom. So it's probably why I don't sound like uh, James Bond or the Queen or Sean Connery. Um, back in the UK, we have, uh, we have multiple different accents. So um, unfortunately, this is the one that kind of I have and I've lived in Texas 10 years now and it's still not budging <laughs> so so jay i um I, from this week's uh, from this week's edition of econ weekly we we kind of have a a, a good mix there is there's, there's macroeconomic news coming through which, which we'll start on but i think also some interesting business news stories that we'll cover today um uh, airline uh, surprise um, acquisition news, and um, and also, I'm really keen today that we get to talk a little bit about uh, the feature on the on the Twin Cities that we did. So um, let's let's actually start with the with the bigger picture. And um, I think we got some 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 serious words coming out from the from the Fed in terms of uh, how we're dealing with the economic environment at the moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and, and I'm going to do this in my best New Jersey accent. We, we have uh, a situation now where the Federal Reserve is, is clearly uh, raising interest rates. Uh, but, and, and that was, they, they in fact ha- did raise interest rates at their last meeting in March by just a quarter of a point. But I think they signaled pretty clearly that uh, inflation was a big problem and that interest rates would would go up further in subsequent meetings. Uh, last week, the the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, the, you can call her the number two, Leil Brainerd, she gave a speech and made it just more clear than ever that, all right, guys, we're inflation is a problem. We recognize it. No more talk of patience. No more talk of transitory. We're gonna we're we're gonna attack this, and we're ready to raise interest rates by, uh, you know, as much as a half point, perhaps even more. Um, at our next meeting, um, they also she also said that uh, the Fed is prepared to uh, pursue what's called quantitative tightening. And we explained that a little bit for those, you know, some, some people will be familiar with it, some maybe not, but we explain it in the, in the issue. But basically, during the pandemic, uh, the Federal Reserve purchased a lot of uh, treasury bonds and, and government-backed mortgage securities, and they're going to reverse that now. Um, which is a, has, has, should theoretically have, a, have an effect of uh, also raising interest rates, tightening the money supply. Um, the, all of this was reinforced, by the way, not just with Brennard's speech, but the transcript, the kind of word-for-word word, uh, transcript of the, of the March meeting was released last week, and it was perfectly clear in there as well that the Federal Reserve is very serious about tightening and uh, the the overall sort of goal of course is uh, we want to slow down demand. We want to slow the economy a little bit so that prices cool off. And difficult thing to do without causing a recession. Uh, this is not you know a finely tuned science here, but they're going to try and we'll see the next meeting is begins on May 3rd. So on May 4th we'll get uh, the details of the next rate hike.
0: It, yes. And, and I think just some perspective, um, inflation is is, is high. Um, I think the highest for a, at least four, 40 years in, in the US mm-hmm. and uh, the corrective tools that they have. So interest the um, interest rate obviously hits the headlines a lot. Um, and we've heard this week Things like the you know mortgage rates, um, almost double what they were a, a year ago um, now. Um, but the actual, in putting that in perspective, we're not looking at a 40-year high in terms of uh, the interest rate. It still is a relatively low figure. So you say about being aggressive, but it, it is from a low base, isn't it?
1: Right. Everything for the past 40 years, everything has been coming down as far as interest rates and uh you know, uh, interest rates for for all sorts of borrowing, whether it be government borrowing, mortgage borrowing, credit card buy I mean, it's all been trending down for, for decades now. So we're, we're all, you know, we're at a very low point. And just to, you know, put some numbers on that, uh, the, now the Federal Reserve, uh, the, you know, we won't go into the mechanics of how it raises interest rates here, but just to put it simply, they're really adjusting, the overnight rates. So the very, very short term rates, which uh, happens, you know, between banks lending to each other and whatnot. Uh, and then that, in theory, kind of ripples through the rest of the economy. And it, that's, in fact, what's happening now. Um, so all the way out to the to the very long end of what we call the curve, where, you know, you're talking about 30 year loans, uh, the, which, which is very typical for a mortgage loan. Most Americans take a 30 year home mortgage rate home mortgage loan, and that rate on average, according to Freddie Mac, is now at 4.72%. And again, as you mentioned, Andrew, that is very low compared to, you know, if you went back into the late 1970s, early 1980s, you're talking, you know, double digits. Now 4.72% sounds good, but it was 3.76% at the beginning of March. Uh, And last summer was 2.8%. So you're talking about very significant increases and this, all, of the, all of this at the same time that housing prices, as we've talked about before, have just skyrocketed in the past year and a half. So this really should uh, cool off the housing market and there is already evidence that that's happening. Now, do you get a housing bust on the scale of 2008, 2009? Probably not. Um, the conditions then were just so much different. There was a lot of fraudulent loans taking place back then. There was an issue of overbuilding. Uh, so right now we're in a, you know, a situation where most of the loans are pretty healthy. They're pretty uh, um, housing supply is very, very restricted. We don't have enough labor to build housing. We've talked about that before. Um, so is it going to be like a huge bubble? Most economists are not too worried about that. But you could get a situation where the market cools off enough that it starts to affect consumer spending, and that in turn starts to affect corporate profits, and you can get into a situation where you have a recession. So, dangerous territory, uh, you know, what the Fed is kind of entering here. But of course, when you have eight or 9% inflation, uh, you've got to do something because inflation, we know from the 1970s can be very toxic to an economy and we know even yes. you know, yeah, from, yeah from other historical episodes uh,
0: and and i would argue more than any other um factor it it, it it's uh, it's a hit on just no normal people in the uh in the country so the lives of people um yes and in, in the inflation it, well, inflation is, 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 a, is a tough one to bring down once it starts to get out, out of control. Um, many countries in the world really do suffer with inflation, and that just plays a havoc, not just with the population, but the economy uh, as a whole. Um, but I think in terms of, um, you know, even at the inflation rates we have here, obviously, it's not in double digits yet, but it's still at record highs and, you know, in recent times, unprecedented. I think one of right. the things. Well, I, bit, I, I was mean.
1: just going to add a little bit of good news on that. Uh, some encouraging news is that uh, used car prices now are starting to, to trend down. Uh, there's an, there's a company called Cox automotive automotive and they have a subsidiary called Mannheim consulting, which puts out a report uh, every month. And they show that used vehicle prices uh, drop 3% from February to March. Now, Again, you always have to keep things in perspective. Um, they're still up 25% from last year. So very, very expensive um, if you're looking for a car right now. Uh, but the you know we may see some inflection in the trend there.
0: Yes, and and it's interesting. Different categories uh, obviously are a higher or lower proportion of households' expenditure, and and that differs depending on the wealth that you have. And I think one of the statistics that we spoke about in this week's edition is is the impact of inflation on poorer households compared compared to wealthier ones. Um, I, I think it's just incredible that. 77 percent i think we, we quoted um of poorer households is of that income is spent on necessities um whereas it's only something like 31 percent for wealthier households that that is an incredible impact if if you're spending four-fifths of your income on on necessities and you're seeing prices increasing by eight percent um and presumably your income is not, then, you know, that is really squeezing uh, lots of people.
1: Right, right. And inequality is obviously a big, big issue uh, in, you know, the US economy as it is for other, uh, you know, industrialized economies has been over the past uh, 20 years or so for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, But that those statistics that you were were quoting was from from the Lara Lyle Brainerd's speech, um, she addressed this issue of inflation hurting uh, lower income Americans disproportionately. Uh, she also gave a stat that uh, lower income Americans spend about 45% of their income on housing, whereas higher income, the number is more like 18%. Uh, so there are those differences. Now, one thing to add to that, and this, this wasn't from, from her speech, but uh, something to keep in mind that for a while, you know, let's call it, you know, most of the second half of last year, probably starting into this year, wage rates for lower income Americans were rising faster than those for higher income Americans. So that was helpful, um, especially for the leisure and hospitality sector, which is a very, very large employer and which was absolutely decimated by the pandemic. Um, and has since come back a lot. It's still actually the total employment in that sector is actually still lower than it was back in you know February 2020 pre-pandemic. Uh, but there's there've been a lot of wage gains in that sector, which which has helped. And in many cases, the wage gains have exceeded the gains in consumer prices, so helpful. However, that that's starting to become less true overall. I mean, the, the, the total number is right now. In terms of, feel- you look at all workers, uh, wages are going up by less than the CPI, than the consumer price index. So prices going up faster than wages, so not good. And that should have, you know, there's not not any huge evidence that spending, consumer spending is taking a hit, but you'd have to believe at some point it will, I mean, you know. Even if your incomes are going up less than prices, you theoretically could dip into savings. You can borrow money on your credit card, so it doesn't necessarily mean spending has to stop. But I think we're starting to see little bit. You know, the retail sales report, um, the last one that came out was okay. It wasn't really so good. Um, I think there's another one coming out next week, so you know, something that we got to watch closely. But uh, but yeah, you, that that is definitely a a topic um, of discussion as it was in Brainerd's speech, how, you know, the, the, what, what impact does inflation have on the lowest income Americans?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And kind of actually is a good segue into one of the other stories we reported this week, uh, major retailer Walmart, but not specifically around their, their prices, but actually around where they've got this challenge in terms of uh, the shortage of labor. Um, now, we've said that uh, the average of, of salaries are, are not increasing in line with inflation, but we are seeing um, some, quite, uh, some quite interesting stories around how people are um, trying to identify uh, labor and um, attract them into their, uh, into their organizations. So I think Walmart, I think it was the example that we gave was with, with, with drivers that they're hiring.
1: Yeah. Uh, So Walmart said last week uh, that they were going to start hiring drivers first year pay one hundred and ten thousand dollars. So you're talking, you know, executive level pay. And, uh, you know, that goes a long way in Arkansas or wherever. I think it's actually not in Arkansas. It's uh, uh, Yeah, I can't remember where it was. They have a couple of different places. But in any case, yeah, it's a lot of money wherever you are. Uh, And yeah, it just speaks to the labor shortage that America is experiencing right now especially yeah. uh, trucking just happens to be one that we've talked about before has has I mean there's been a labor shortage in trucking for you know 30 40 years now it's uh it's nothing new uh, but you know the 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 companies that are the most powerful companies the wealthiest companies will be able to deal with it better than others so Walmart yeah you know they can they can afford paying hundred ten thousand uh, dollars to a first year trucker whereas you know, small business couldn't. So there is some, yes. you know, going back yeah. to the theme of inequality. That's uh, you know, there's some corporate inequality there too.
0: I, oh, that's true. But but I think also uh, there is there is a general issue in terms of that that sector. Um, Drivers are part of the the wider logistics, and that's part of the supply chain uh, part of the economy. And um, I actually spoke. Um, Uh, on a panel at a conference this week down down in Houston. Um, The conference was related to um, break-bought cargo. It was uh, was a mainly maritime conference, but the topic of the panel was generally in supply chain and logistics, how we retain more people into the industry. Um, But it wasn't just about attraction, it was then about retention. And I think that is one of the major issues that the industry is seeing, um, which suggests that there needs to be work to actually make sure that people want to stick around and, and do those jobs. Or they see it as a, as a career. There is an opportunity to have, actually have a good living. Or develop and uh, and progress if, if that's something they wanted to do, and that's probably not something particularly logistics that uh, the industry has been that good at doing. Um, and I was on the panel with um, some major educational um, establishments uh, that have supply chain courses for future leaders, um, and we we really spoke about that. You know, the industry needs to really get its messaging. Uh, correctly and also once we have people in there really develop uh, people make them actually want to stay make them realize that it's such a vital part of of our economy Um, and uh, you know the truck drivers themselves I mean one statistic which is just incredible Jay is the turnover Uh, so the retention rate of truck drivers it's uh, it's uh, it's over a hundred percent a year that means that the wow. average truck driver, the average truck driver, will not be in that same job um, the year uh, in the following year. And in some some organizations, it's three hundred percent. So you kind of are the, and, same, the same job three times a year.
1: And from um, what I understand, Andrew, it does. This, this is concentrated in the more long distance trucking, right, where people have to be away from home for long periods of time. Uh, or is, yes, it, is it more
0: that, that is the toughest one yes and the mantra is always in fact one of the big selling points is the organizations that can say we'll get you home every night um, you don't have to be spending time out um, on the on the road um, but there's there's there are structural issues across the whole piece whether it's the last mile drivers who tend to have different contracts um they don't necessarily work directly for the, you know, with FedEx or Amazon, that they're doing the, the deliveries for. Um, some of the conditions make it really tough uh, for them to uh, to really kind of get a good 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 living from that kind of role. And it also means that they're competing with other lower wage kind of opportunities, which maybe are less stressful and with better better hours. Um, but certainly on the trucking side, um, that even even in the the long distance market where you can't avoid being away from home and being on the road there's also infrastructure challenges there's not enough parking for trucks safe Mm. places to stay overnight Um, there is obviously we've spoken a lot about the supply chain delays being held up at ports and the structure of the uh, remuneration uh, for truck drivers is they are paid by the mile when they are not moving, when they are stuck in a line waiting for a load, um, they, they're they not getting paid. And uh, it means that they're, you know, if you think their average average rate per hour is, is incredibly low as a result. So there are some structural issues that really need addressing, I think, to uh, attract and retain people in, in that sector. And Walmart's approach there, obviously, throw more money at this, I think is... Is, is a good part of the solution but I don't think it's the full full solution
1: hmm. yeah the the labor department puts out a report every month uh, yeah it's monthly I believe the quits report where it it, it uh, shows how many people are actually quitting their jobs and it's at you know throughout the pandemic it's been at record highs I mean, everybody seems to be quitting their jobs and 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 we're not just talking about trucking here just throughout the economy and the the biggest reason, that people are quitting is that they're getting a better offer from someone else. And you can see where, if, you know, you're a long distance trucker or even a last mile trucker, first mile trucker, you, you know, Amazon comes, builds a new warehouse next to your house and then they offer, you know, really good wages. Uh, and suddenly, you know, the trucking firm has competition and the whole, you know, the whole transportation uh, ecosystem has competition. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very, um, it's really, really a buyer's market in the, in, in the labor, uh, you know, labor market right now. Uh, and that goes to, you know, in, in this week's issue, we talk about, um, we, we go into some depth on immigration. And uh, so I, I think I have these numbers, right? There are 11 million open jobs that, that can't be filled in the United States right now. And at one estimate says that there are, 5 million fewer immigrants in the United States currently than there would have been had we had we continued at the same pace uh, back in 2015, 2016, I believe. So that's, that's one issue. I mean, immigration is not the only reason. Um, also, we've talked about it before the aging demographics uh, and, you know, you could, there's all, there's all sorts of theories about why there's so many open jobs. But uh, but yeah, the the, the labor market is is definitely having a moment.
0: (laughs) Yes, it it definitely is. And it's something we're going to come back to uh, many times. It's now kind of one of the key employment rates is always a key metric that people look out for, but it's especially keen um, at the moment. Uh, yeah.
1: And, and earnings, the, the new earnings season starts this week. So companies are going to start reporting their first quarter results, first quarter 2022, which is, you know, January, March, and April. Uh, it starts this week. And one of the things I'm going to be looking for, uh, you know, with with very high interest is, uh, you know, to the extent that there's been any supply chain relief, and that's kind of a broad, you know, supply side really being a broad uh, way of, you know, talking about is are are, are are things getting better on the labor front? Uh, is there more port capacity? Are there, is there more semiconductors coming in to build cars? Is there you know just things of that of that sort? So we'll be watching yes. watching closely to see what you know companies say.
0: Uh, uh, absolutely, I, but supply chain, as we've discussed before, so many variables affecting things there. um The news that. A, you know, major shutdown in in, in Shanghai, um, in China, the effects that that is having in terms of just, you know, goods moving out of the manufacturing part of, of, of China and, and getting to the US. So, you know, there are so many things that can affect the, 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 the supply chain efficiency and the holds and what, what in, impacts that is having. So it'd be interesting also to hear the outlook as well as the actual Q1 um, results and what what companies are saying and seeing, uh, notwithstanding, we have a conflict going on in Europe as well, where there's you know huge commodity um, sources are being impacted. And again, we spoke before about um, uh, about that from whether that's from uh, oil or some of the the, the the minerals that are mined out of uh, Russia, right through to to grain, which. Both countries are a major source of um, for the world economy, maybe less of an impact on the U.S., but certainly globally will have an impact. So it's all connected. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. And perhaps in the future, a little bit less connected. It's, that's a big theme right now uh, in the world of economics is, you know, is, are, is the world becoming less globalized? Is the American economy becoming less globalized and still too early to tell? But. Uh, there's certainly a push to bring more manufacturing back home to uh, you know rely less on Russian oil, for example. So that would be you know a major major shift in the way the. US economy works because over the past you know many decades, uh, the US economy has progressively globalized, outsourced a lot of its production. Um, and frankly, it, you know a lot of it's not just you know you think of U.S. companies moving production to Asia and whatnot, but you also have a lot of foreign manufacturers uh, building here in the U.S. And you think of companies like uh, you know Toyota building factories throughout the th- throughout the Appalachian region or whatever, or even in Dallas. I think isn't Toyota based their North American headquarters is in Dallas? It,
0: so, it is, yes. Uh, yes.
1: Yeah. So you know, does the, how 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 much does that change? Are we becoming Less, are we, in fact, becoming less globalized, which some, some people think some people seem to think we are?
0: Yes. Well, well and The Economist does a great phrase for this is slow globalization <laughs> so, as that transition takes place. Um, so you mentioned um, owning seasons coming up. So I think we're we'll going kind to of be talking a little bit more about specific companies in, in, the, in the upcoming weeks but there was some company news this week I think we ought to touch on. Um, and it is really your kind of area of expertise, Jay, in the, uh, in the airline industry. So tell us what's going on and why those yellow planes of spirit seem to be so attractive uh, <laughs> at the moment.
1: Yeah, so brace yourselves everyone, because we're gonna spend the next three hours talking about JetBlue and Spirit. No, just kidding, but uh, I, I will say a few words on uh, big merger this week, big merger proposal. Uh, So just backing up, an airline called Frontier Airlines, they're based in Denver, Colorado, and they're what we call an ultra-low-cost carrier, very, uh, you know, dense seating configurations, um, low amenities, charged for everything, Uh, very unique and very successful, by the way, business model, Um, perhaps the most, single most successful airline business model there is out there, uh, pioneered by companies like Ryanair in Europe and a legion here at home and, 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 and Spirit, another another ultra-low-cost carrier. And Frontier, um, a few weeks ago, said that it was going to buy, emerge with, merge with uh, with Spirit. And then last week, JetBlue came along and said, no, nah, you know what? We want Spirit ourselves. We're going to pay a little bit more for it. So that uh, is, we've got, you know, perhaps, I, is there going to be a bidding war? You know, will Frontier come back with another, uh another offer perhaps i kind of tend to think not i think frontier is would be just as happy to to be you know the the lone ultra low cost carrier pretty much left in the market i mean there's a region in some country as well but they're, they're considerably smaller and their business models are different uh in some ways so I don't know that Frontier is all too unhappy, uh, but in any case, uh, JetBlue is, is not an ultra low cost carrier. They're more of a traditional low cost carrier with a lot of amenities. They're, uh, they do a lot of um, uh, routes catering to business traffic. They're even flying to London now. Um, and so it's, uh, it, w- it was treated by, by some as a very unusual unusual uh, kind of business move. Uh, question, you know, a lot of people question JetBlue's uh, strategic direction here in doing this, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it does seem there is there is some logic. Uh, clearly, JetBlue uh, doesn't want to be, um, you know, the I guess this would relegate them to the if, if they didn't buy Spirit, if they they'd be the sixth largest airline in the U.S. I think it is maybe if it, but in any case, scale matters in the airline industry. Um, anytime you get bigger. You, you gain a lot of uh, extra financial power in areas like your ability to charge uh, for, for miles that you sell to, to banks and other companies. Uh, frequent flyer miles are very, frequent flyer programs are very profitable for airlines. Um, you gain all sorts of scale in other areas as well. I mean, even network scope, the more, the more places that you fly, the more uh, relevant you are to, to companies and they'll sign business contracts with you, et cetera etc. So um, there's definitely some, some logic there. There's also a lot of competition in Florida right now. That's a big, big battleground. And it's a place where the demand is very strong um, and actually held up relatively well during the pandemic. But supply as a result of, you know, every, because demand is so good, everybody's throwing capacity in there. So in a place like Orlando or Fort Lauderdale, uh, you have Spirit and Frontier and JetBlue and uh, other carriers just all going at it. And any consolidation, you know, in JetBlue's mind might, might help with that. Uh, Florida is a very substantial part of their network. Um, and the last thing I'll say in a more general sense is that uh, consolidation has really worked well for the, for the airline industry over the past, you know, really since 2008, when you had the first big merger, Delta and Northwest. Um, actually, even a few years before that, in 2005, I think it was when America West, a small airline in Arizona bought U.S. Airways, which was in bankruptcy. Um, really, ever since then, you had you know four or five, six subsequent mergers, and they've all been more or less good. You know, some better than others. Some had some operational issues, but in the end, the entire industry benefited. And the U.S. airline industry is very, very uh, um, structurally very healthy. It's certainly compared to what it was, let's say pre two thousand and eight, before the financial crisis. So. Um, there is this sense, you know, there used to be this sense, I remember when I first started working in the airline industry in the 1990s, there was kind of this overriding sense that mergers were just too difficult in the airline industry, because, you know, you had to combine these really complex software systems, and you had to unionize workforces that are always hard to mesh together, uh, and you had to, you know, bring all sorts of different fleets together, so you created all kind of dis-synergies, um, not quite like that anymore. I mean, after the record of, of, of these, you know, a decade of mergers, there's kind of the opposite sense now that, yeah, we could do them. It's, you know, may not be easy, but, but we'll be fine. And yep. even especially like software, you don't really hear too much about software being integration, being too much of an issue anymore. Um, if JetBlue bought Spirit, they'd have more or less the same fleet types. Um, it's all Airbus and, uh, you know, labor unions, that's you know, in this case, they're gonna bring spirits people up to JetBlue wage scales, I presume. So, you know, maybe maybe a little less of an issue there. Uh so yeah, I'm being a little long-winded here, but uh that's that's kind of my take. One final thing I probably should say is that JetBlue will definitely encounter some, at least some resistance from antitrust authorities because they are also at this moment. Looking to uh, get um, antitrust approval for an alliance they want to do with American Airlines. So uh, you know, at a time when when you have inflation, you know, prices are going up throughout the economy. You have uh, you know, the Biden administration has made its sentiments clear that it's you know doesn't that consolidation is an issue in many industries. They they specifically mentioned the airline industry. Um, I think this might be a heavy lift for JetBlue to get certainly both the American Alliance and the Spirit takeover uh, passed through, you know, through through the Justice Department and, and other relevant competition authorities.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, or, you know, really looking into a crystal ball, uh, it might be that. They think they're not going to get the Northeast Alliance with American through and Could be. kind of Plan I, I so Jay, you kept it below three hours. Great job. That
1: wasn't that wasn't easy. I had it. But, but class.
0: I just had one more thing in there. Um, so you mentioned about. The uh, all of the consolidation that we have seen in the last 10 15 years is, is, has been generally kind of good from a business perspective. There have also been some negatives from a passenger perspective. Um, not that this is necessarily going to be, I think, repeated if it, either Frontier Spirit or JetBlue and Spirit mergers happen because they're they're both high growth airlines. But what we saw with the majors consolidating northwest and delta united continental american and uh, u.s is we saw that reduction in uh, the number of hubs that they use and certain certain locations um actually did lose uh, considerable service i'm thinking of places like you know maybe memphis uh cleveland one as well st louis um and you know, that that was kind of a, an impact of those mergers taking place from maybe not on the business bottom line, but for the passengers.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's all true. The, the argument there, though, is that a lot of those hubs were really they, they were overkill. Um, you know, we used to joke when I started my my airline career at the old U.S. Airways and we used to joke that uh, just along Interstate 70, I believe it was, there was five or six airline hubs you know the mid the midwest was just way over and that was the result of just yeah all sorts of uh you know the industry used to be very fragmented you know the the u.s u.s airways alone had a hub in like it's like pittsburgh and dayton and indianapolis and kansas city <laughs> there's no indianapolis is northwest but anyway um there was just it was it was way over so you know did delta really um need a hub in cincinnati it, it, it was it was just too uh Um, Cincinnati, uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. Um, but, uh, the, but, but by by the time, you know, Delta was ready to merge with Northwest in 2008, uh, Cincinnati was really not that necessary. it was just too small to operate hub. Uh, same thing with, you know, Memphis for Delta. And you mentioned some of the other ones, Cleveland for, for United, uh, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, of course, I mean, passengers would absolutely... Love, you know, a hub everywhere. Uh, but um, they're, you know, I, I think the, the industry's network has become r- more rationalized. Now, now, one thing that I used to make, and, I, and just to be clear, I used to um, for 16 years, I wrote a newsletter called uh, Airline Weekly. And um, one of the points I always used to make was that it's, it's not just, I mean, consolidation certainly um, kind of removed a lot of incentive to, to, to grow. For sure, um, you know, growth, if, if you didn't have deconsolidation, if, if the industry remained fragmented, you'd have more airline capacity. I don't think there's any question about that. But if you look back, one of the sort of the most, uh, the thing that correlates most with airline capacity and airline growth is fuel prices. So if you have a, I mean, one thing about the first half of the 2010s was that you had very, very high fuel prices. Um, and that's you know, a period when a lot of these hubs were closing. Um, and then you had a sort of a brief period uh, you know big crash in oil prices 20 late 2014 2015 um, and I'd have to go go look but i but I suspect that you know you'd have you'd see more growth in that period um, and then of course now we have very high fuel prices too so that that's you know keep that in mind when you think about you know how much airlines are either cutting or adding capacity
0: yeah no it's it's, it's a valid point. and 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 we could talk about airlines for the the remainder of the day. So I think we'll we'll move on to the the final topic that I really wanted to cover today. And it is actually it's a hub city, which is uh, Minneapolis or accurately speaking, it's the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, which we did a focus on uh, today. Um, So, you know, this 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 kind of northern star uh, within the United States, uh, very, very important commercial um city within uh, within north america with an interesting history jay yeah it, it is and
1: it's it's um when you think of midwestern cities i mean some people think of uh you know the the pejorative term of rust belt sometimes comes to mind you know you think of all these factories closing deindustrialization in places like detroit and cleveland and even to extent chicago um, but, but Minneapolis really doesn't have that reputation and it's kind of experienced a rather different history. It never really was dependent on the auto industry and there's never really been much auto up there. Um, some, some industry, um, I think there was a Ford plant at some point up there, but, but, but all that relatively, you know, relatively modest. Um, but Minneapolis, uh, it is a very big city. I mean, I think at one point it was the. I think I have it in this week's issue. Is maybe like the 11th busiest, largest city by population in the U.S. And today it is. um, I'm looking for the figure here. I think it's uh, something like 16, 17. You know, it's in the teens, Um, and it's it's a very healthy economy. And one uh, aspect of its history is that very early on, it developed as as a big food production um, place. So you didn't have, let's say, the auto manufacturing, but you'd have the food manufacturing instead. So food manufacturing, food processing is still a very, very big part of the Minneapolis economy. Um, The, you know, the the sort of the standard bearer there is uh, a company called Cargill, which is actually a private company. You can't buy stock in it, uh, but it's absolutely massive. It's uh, 155,000 workers, $134 billion in annual revenue, which incidentally is about Identical to Ford and General Motors, so larger than J.P. Morgan Chase or you know, it's a very very large company. Uh, so that's one you know key component to understanding the Twin Cities economy. Another is that healthcare is very very big. Now, if you've read it, Econ Weekly or heard us speak during these podcasts, you know that healthcare. I can make that statement for pretty much any place in the United States. Healthcare is bigger <laughs> everywhere. It's just you know it's a it's it's the big uh, it's the big giant that's everywhere in the economy, 20% of US GDP. Um, but it does have even, a, it, it has an even um, sort of bigger, uh, a bigger uh, footprint in Minneapolis, um, because of companies like United Healthcare. United Healthcare is the sixth biggest company in the United States by revenues. Um, absolutely massive. It's it's actually, it's really two companies. It's their, you know, the largest insurer, health insurer in the United States. And they also, you know, they do a lot of Um, health uh, delivery of of, uh, health services as well. So absolutely giant company there, a lot of medical device manufacturers, um, a lot of hospitals, several giant hospitals. Uh, So um, that is uh, a very important part of the Minneapolis economy, um, which because of that, remember, during the 2008-09 recession, one critical area, um, you know, the whole economy really got hit extremely hard, uh, you know, everything from housing to finance to, you know, include, including a lot of economies, sorry, a lot of sectors where you have high paid workers, um, knowledge workers, so to speak. Healthcare was the one sector that escaped all that. So even during, you know, 2008, 2009, the healthcare providers and companies um and organizations within Minneapolis actually added jobs, so they didn't get hit as hard um, by that recession. Now, of course, the the most recent crisis with COVID was essentially a healthcare recession, um, so the there was a little bit more turbulence there. But even, you know, if you look at its impact on on companies uh, and and even you know large hospitals. Uh, it was, you know, certain United, United healthcare certainly didn't, uh, they didn't suffer financially during the, uh, during the crisis, um, still made, you know, a lot of money. So the, that that's really, um, sort of put a floor under the Minneapolis economy, but then on top of that, you know, you do have the, uh, it is St. Paul is the home of, um, the Minnesota state government. So you have a lot of government employees that tends to be very stable. You also have a lot of finance jobs. You have big companies like Target and Best Buy that are based there. 3M, um, 3M as well. Yep. 3M is is there. Um, you, yeah, you can you can name name a bunch more. Um, CH Robinson, back to logistics, um, they're they're based there. So it's uh, I think there's if you look at the big metros um, and you rank them by the number of Fortune 500 companies, Minneapolis comes up pretty high. I don't know, you know, I think New York is number one probably Chicago, number two, uh, Houston, I think is number three because a lot of oil companies down there. And, you know, then you start to get into like the Atlanta's many the Minneapolis kind of that next tier. Um, Dallas may be number four, I'm not sure. But um, uh, that's, you know, they, they, they hit, they punch above their weight uh, in that area. So it is a very healthy, well diversified economy. And even the population, um, despite being a cold weather, um, northern uh Having, having that geography, the population has grown quite fast, um, not double digits. You know, we're not talking Austin, Texas, or Dallas, Texas, or Orlando, Florida here, or Phoenix, or, you know, some Sunbelt city. But, uh, you know, you get 7%, 8 9% growth, growth per decade. Um, that was, I'm quoting from the 2010s there. I think it was, growth was, uh, um, actually it was 9%. I'm looking now as 9%. Uh, and that is very good for, for a city uh, with that geography.
0: Um, yes, and established yeah. as well. You know, it's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's um, it's kind of quite a result to, to retain like that. Be, I think if you probably looked at it in a league table of established cities, um, you know, so you're comparing it to, you know, the East Coast giants like Philadelphia, New York, Boston, maybe a place like San Francisco, I would imagine it's going to be... Um, really punching uh high up if not yeah yeah
1: right and i can give you some comparisons i mean minneapolis with nine percent growth during the 2010s uh you know new york grew less than two percent los angeles grew three percent chicago shrank uh point one percent uh philadelphia grew two percent so there, detroit grew less than one percent so there you go you know that's um it's uh you know again it's not quite uh, Seattle, 15 percent or, uh, you know, Houston, 19 percent, Dallas, 19 percent. But but pretty good. Um, Minneapolis has to be happy with that. Now, obviously, there's always a concern that, you know, with remote working where more people want to go to better you know, places with better weather. Uh, the, you know, the winters are very cold up there. Um, but uh, yeah, hard to hard to have say too many bad things. I mean, we do, you know, mention obviously what happened with uh, the um, there was the. Uh, the, the question of uh, income inequality in, in Minneapolis sort of came to national attention with the George Floyd killing last year. And that's something that's very much, I mean, if you go to the Chamber of Commerce website or the, you know, the local economic development uh, group, um, that's something clearly uh, on their minds and something that they want to address, you know, to, to better uh, make sure that um, the growth is more inclusive and the, the wealth is more inclusive.
0: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's really a fascinating um, uh, study in terms of the, the the twin cities up there, and uh, really recommend reading uh, reading that part of, of uh, Econ Weekly. So Jay, I think uh, we probably covered um, all we're going to cover today on the podcast uh, before we uh, we say goodbye. I've just got one housekeeping item to to mention um for those of you that haven't already identified that this uh, this podcast or this recording is now available on all of the the podcast uh, platforms out there if you want to if you search for econ weekly podcast um you uh, you'll find it so you'll be able to get the subscription um so it comes through every week and please uh leave us a review um as everybody knows those reviews kind of help to uh to grow the awareness of the, of the podcast. Um, So Jay, um, do you want to kind of just finish off, remind everybody uh, where they can find you, where they can find uh, Econ, Econ Weekly and sign up?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, my email is uh, jay at econweekly.biz. And the website is uh, econweekly.substack.com. And we'll have another (laughs) busy, busy week ahead of us with, uh, we've got uh, not just Q1 earnings season, but, New inflation numbers, new CPI data for, for March, and some retail sales numbers, consumer sentiment, inventories. We'll, we'll, we'll have a lot of fun this week. Uh,
0: absolutely. Yes, I, I forgot to say, we have got a heck of a week coming up. So next week is going to be a bump, bumper edition um, of, of Econ Weekly, and uh, we'll cover that, as always, in in the podcast. So we'll see everybody in a week's time.
1: Thanks, everybody. Bye.